Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily. And... Yeah, get on with it. What about Victoria University? You're a professor there as well. I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are... The Money The Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, it's only an adjunct professor, which I don't think really counts. I mean... I mean, I could go around calling myself Professor Kohler, but, uh, you know. You're a paid expert at the Victoria University. No, I'm not paid anymore. Oh, that's not paid. No, no. They've cut off the money. They've cut your money off. Jeez. What about all those um, honorary doctorates that went to all those uh, white blokes? And uh, Tom Snow, son of Terry, the uh, $600 million owner of Canberra Airport, Rich Lister, cut off their funding for Melbourne Uni because they gave six old white blokes honorary doctorates huh. and no one of any diversity. Well, I'm an old white bloke. And I know. And have, you got an honorary, honor- have you got an honorary doctorate? No, but I'd, t- I'd accept one. Jeez, they, they give them out like confetti. They just... You know, the way right? universities dish out honorary doctorates, anyway. But you've, you're an honorary, unpaid, adjunct professor. So congratulations for that. Um, now, what are we talking about? I'm also an honorary ex-editor of the AFR, Financial Review, and I went to their 70th birthday party last night in Sydney. Um, and I'm feeling a bit scratchy this morning, Stephen, mm. I must confess. God, you got a hangover. So um, was a, There was an after party. Oh, where was that hill? Well, it was in the bar upstairs. Oh, okay. Called the Zephyr Bar, which has a magnificent view of Sydney, I must say. <laughs> the Zephyr Bar. And you were there as a, I guess, what, 11-year veteran, ex-Chanticleer, and ex- one, of their, one of their sixth greatest AFR editors, I guess. <laughs> it's been about six, hasn't it? <laughs> well, there haven't been that many, to be honest. But no, uh, I feel like West Farmers. I, I'm actually, I'm actually the oldest living editor. Oh, good. Um, uh, editor from eighty-five to eighty-eight. Did they do the usual media power play and invite a whole bunch of former prime ministers and premiers? Yes, I chatted to John Howard, Paul Keating, Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> All in the same room on the same night. Uh, I chatted to, you know, Peter Costello. Phil Lowe was there. Glenn Stevens, his predecessor at the Reserve Bank. Ian McFarlane, his predecessor, who I sat next to. So who out of that mob got to give a speech? Josh Frydenberg gave the keynote. uh, And the other keynote was Robin Denham, the chair of Tesla. Um, Neither speech was any good. (laughs) They were both terrible. Uh, Josh told me that he... He started writing his speech three weeks ago and had to change it all after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And he spent the last three days sweating over the speech, uh, writing it himself. He didn't get anyone else to write it. And he wrote it himself. And gave a terrible speech. Why wouldn't they give, well, look, wouldn't they give uh, Keating a terrible, chance? To... I mean, I, I'm being perhaps a little unkind, but, but the, the, definitely the consensus in the room afterwards was that it wasn't the greatest speech they'd yeah. ever heard. And Robin Denham's speech, honestly, she... Chair of Telstra, Tesla, I should say, ex-CFO of Telstra. Ex-CFO of Telstra and um, uh, head of some sort of technology council Mm. of Australia or something. Mm. Anyway, she just pulled out this word processor speech uh, that she would have given at uh, various graduate um, ceremonies at universities and so on. Rah, rah, technology. Technology is great. We're all technologists. You know, and you're like, oh, God. So... And no one from the AFR. So I said to him afterwards, you know, why don't you? You could have spoken. Well, well, I would have been more interesting than those people. But I said, but I said to the master, why didn't you invite somebody to speak who would be interesting, who would say something interesting? You know, 
And but the answer was? Well. Oh, no, well, they went for big names. Yeah. You know. There was a night of big names, Stephen. Well, it, was a, it was a name dropper's paradise. Fair yeah. Well, I'm just, I did 70 days at the AFR and I didn't get an invite. The oh, 70 days of pretty poor rear window columns. I think that's poor form. 23 Stephen, years ago. I know, but uh, anyway, you're lucky you got to go. You did you, seventy days. Seventy days of rear window, did you? Yeah. Right. I was the shortest served rear window editor. I was carving them up, you know, defamation threats every third day, that sort of stuff. It was a it was a well read column, and then I, I had a brain implosion and resigned to run against Jeff Kennett in his seat of Burwood in 1999. So that was the end of that my mainstream possibly, media career. That was possibly not your uh, best decision. Well, Stephen. I mean. I, I, mean, then, I then set up jeff.com, which had more traffic than the Labor Party's website, and then Jeff lost, and we changed jeff.com to crikey.com when the slogan was bringing down governments since September 1999. So if I hadn't quit, quit his rear window and run against Jeff, there would never have been a crikey. So I, th- I don't think it was that bad a decision. No, no, we're blessed to have crikey, well, I think. Yeah. So you can always, you know, you can always claim that. You started crikey. There <laughs> it is. Right. You did. And poor, you sold it for a million bucks. Poor Eric Beach has to sustain all the losses ever since, but uh, you know he's done a great job. I don't think he was losing money anymore. Oh, at the Christmas party, he said it had lost $15 million over the last uh, 15 years since did he, he tell sold you he must it. Have been finally, drunk. it's making a profit and paying a dividend did now. He, did he tell you the truth? <laughs> you got drunk. <laughs> yeah. Told you the truth. Anyway. Now, uh, listen, you want to talk about Warney. Now, you, um, uh, I'm told, uh, played... Played cricket against him and with him. And with him, yes. He uh, he was the captain of Mentone Grammar. I was the uh, playing for Ivano Grammar and he, he came along and I think I faced three balls off him, was dropped on one of them but took a sneaky single and then gave it away the next over to the spinner at the other end. And then he carved me all over the park when he batted at number four for Mentone Grammar. And then he was captain of the combined grammars team and I was the sort of third change, last picked, just made it into the side. So I actually got to play three games under him as captain. And I'll never forget going up to Kilmore College in uh, Assumption College in Kilmore and it was a howling gale and I was bowling wide. I couldn't land it into the wind. And he took me off, brought himself on and just landed every leggy perfectly into this ridiculous gale. So... Yeah, and he was a sledger back then too, so he was one of those guys. So, but who, you wrote this scandalous piece about him for Crikey, oh, but sledging tw- him. 21 years, yeah, because he was a foul-mouthed sledger and, you know, I mean, this I, is, that was 21 years ago I wrote that. Yeah, right, so it's, yeah. Not, it's not after he died. I haven't been speaking ill of the dead, so right. I was going to say he's been a, you know, let's talk about him from an investment point of view. They, they reckon he's worth about 50, so you compare him to the Don, so the best two cricketers we've ever, ever had are Don, Don Bradman, the batsman, Warney, the bowler. The Don did 20 years as a broker, stockbroker, his own firm after his first firm, the broke went broke, Harry Hodgetts. Did he get rich? I don't think so. He he gave it all to the Don Bradman Foundation. And his foundation never got in trouble with consumer affairs like Warney's foundation did. (laughs) And then the Don became a professional director, Kelvinator, Argo, Folding, and then he became the, the, the worst curmudgeonly grump on the Cricket Australia board, you know, not wanting to pay the Chapel Brothers anything and, you know, I was never paid, so why should you be paid? So, whereas Warney hasn't touched the share market and he's he's been a mansion flipper in Brighton. He's bought and sold six mansions in Brighton in the last 20 years and he's, he's made at least two million on every deal. So he's a great payer of stamp duty 
So has he done it because he's never satisfied with the house or has he done it to make money? I think I think he's done it to make money. I, I reckon there's a Shane Warne premium that if you're buying Warney's house, you pay 10 or 15% more. So I think he buys a house, makes it famous, sells it for two or three million more and then buys the next one. So um, he's just been an incredible property flipper. And, uh, you know, and he's, he's done well because he hasn't had to work and he's... A lot of people like him. He loves his gambling. A lot of guys like that, they gamble it all away. But he, you know, he's worth, they reckon, 50 mil. And he's he's about to build a mansion in Portsea. He paid $3.6 million for the land and was about all to right. build a $500 mansion. So and now he's going to have a massive funeral. He's going to have the biggest funeral in Melbourne since 300,000 turned up for Sir John Monash's funeral in October 1931. And the amazing thing about that is that the, the, the crowd's lined the trip from Parliament House where the Monash funeral was to the Brighton Cemetery where Sir John Monash was buried so eight, was eight jo- miles away. Why was Sir John Monash so popular? Well, he was perceived to have won us the First World War. He was the, the brilliant uh, general in the First World War and then he created the State Electricity Commission. So, But they, the fact that 300,000 turned up, I mean, that was that was, you know... 15% of the population at the time or something. So, yeah, and a, a general and uh, an a company to engineer yeah. could never be that yeah. popular now. And that's why... You'd have to be a sportsman to be yeah. popular. And, and people say that's why we never had any anti-Semitism in, in Melbourne because he was this Jewish guy who was a war hero and everyone loved him and they all turned up to his funeral. So, mm. But the Brighton connection, I mean, Warney, you know, he's the king of Brighton property and... Uh, and you never know. He might get a hundred thousand at the G on March thirty for his um, evening state funeral, which is very unusual to have an, a nighttime state funeral at a sporting facility. But uh, he was so huge. Now, um, I need to ask you about uh, AGL. There's a few questions about AGL. We'll get to that perhaps in the questions, um, or maybe we can head off the questions now. But um, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Now, because uh, are they gone away forever or is it, or is it down depend on what happens to the vote on their demerger? Well, uh, I mean, I think it, the fact that Mike Cannon-Brooks has put his pen down, as he says on Twitter, so quickly, I think shows that the whole exercise was just a performance exercise in posturing and that he and Brookfield were never really that serious because if you're going to... You don't just walk away at 8.25 a share when the board says we're not going to open the books we you know we, we don't think you're serious enough and equally the board should be condemned for not opening up the books and the shares are now trading at an 11% discount to that Twitter offer if you can call it that uh, at 7.23 so it's disappointing all around I think the bidders have behaved badly by not following through and showing they're serious and and the board should have opened the books up because the market is expressing a view that the stock's only worth 7.23, and so I think the whole thing is pretty ordinary, to be honest. And uh, the demerger will now go ahead unless Cannon Brooks and/or Brookfield buy a blocking stake. But no demerger's ever been voted down before, so I can't see why this one will be voted down. Only because, uh, and I'm not saying that this will happen. Only because the shareholders think that if they vote it down, they'll get a bid. Well, but the, the, the bid's gone away. So I think what will happen is... What typically happens with with, um, with uh, demergers is you often get a bid within the first couple of years after the demerger. I mean, yes. you know, CSR, Rinker, um, when Macquarie Infrastructure Group spun off Sydney Roads, you know, Transurb has snapped it up within six months. So 
often the mergers are all about creating a takeover target. Yeah. And AGL's good business, the, the clean retail site, is a good business. And you might get some someone coming along paying a big price, not having the a- ugly asbestos equivalent belching brown coal thing sitting there. So if anyone's going to bid for Axel Power, the, the, the power generation business, you know how I reckon it is? Snowy Hydro. Federal government owned. Uh, if Morrison gets back, I reckon that they'd be stupid enough to buy it, just like they bought out New South Wales and Victoria from Snowy Hydro for six billion dollars four years ago. I reckon they would bu- they would buy it through Snowy Hydro to stop the closures, such as their whole you know we love coal, don't shut it down early stuff. But it is interesting as to who will pick up the liabilities and the clean-up costs once it's demerged. Because if you look at a business like ERA, the uranium miner up in the Northern Territory near Kakadu, they have $550 million on deposit with the federal government for remediation clean-up. Is AGL going to do that? Are they going to say we're, we're dumping the, the tail, the ugly tail, and we're going to give a billion dollars to Victorian and New South Wales governments to make sure that when we do close these things, we can decommission well, them? Well, they might have up? to. Somebody's got to pay Someone's for it. Someone's got to do it, exactly. Sure. And yeah. they've had the benefit of it over the years. Correct. They have. So they should pay for it. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So now, we should just deal with Ukraine uh, before we get on to questions. Um, so, uh, I don't know, are you, uh, are you in the bunker with the tin hat on, uh, metaphorically speaking? Yes. I, look, I've just never seen anything like it. The, the wildness on the markets with the commodity shocks this week, you know, with nickel and with oil falling 14% overnight from a 13-year high, you know, the supply chain shocks and just the madness. No, I mean, no one has ever invaded another country when they're reliant on the rest of the world for trade like the Russians are and seeing predictions that the Russian economy is going to contract by a third Mm. and the Ukrainian economy similar. Mm. So it just shows you the price of war and the price of being shut out of the international system. Yeah. But can we afford to shut them out with all the minerals they produce? I mean, they can, as you wrote in the New Daily, it could be havoc if we get get shut off from all the... It'll be every bit as, or could be, every bit as... um Disruptive as the uh, first oil shock in 1973. Yeah, absolutely. It's all down to the Saudis. Apparently, they've got only they've got the just, capacity. The, the thing is, it's not just oil. It's I know semiconductors and and food. I mean, the wheat price has gone oh. up to beyond where it was in. It's um, gone from what 263 the, to 400. Yeah, yeah. So that Record. and that's beyond where it was um, in 2010-11 that mm. caused the Arab Spring. Mm. Because that was a food shortage mm. or food price mm. um, revolution, really. But the weirdest thing is that if, if anyone is a winner from this, it's pr- it probably is arguably Australia in, in the world in Absolutely. terms of um, you know um, nickel prices and um, wheat prices and that sort of stuff. So, but I think it's just it's, I've just never seen the West so united, and I've never seen so many foreign brands pulling out of a market that's so large. Yeah. You know, you get the old Iran and Burma and, you know, we're, we're pulling out. But never before has, you know, McDonald's, hundreds and hundreds of stores, all the big four accounting firms with thousands of staff and, and just shutting their doors. And they're paying the staff. They're conti- continuing to pay the staff. So you wonder how long that's going to go on for because there's no – I mean, 
it's hard to imagine them actually reopening the stores. Well, that's the question is when, you know, when BP and Shell say they're pulling out, are they actually handing back the equity in the joint ventures to the Russian state? I mean, that's actually giving them a windfall. You wouldn't want to do that. No, no, that's right. So you should, you should, the announcement should be we are shutting. Yeah. So it's not, it's not we've gone forever. Well, that's we're what just, McDonald's is. ceasing. Yeah, that's what shutting. McDonald's is. They've shut the stores. Yeah, yeah. And with Visa and MasterCard and those guys, it's just, you know, we're shutting off banking. So it's, 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 a, it's a blockade shutdown, not yeah. a permanent withdrawal. But it's being reported as if everyone is getting out. Forever. And nothing like this has ever happened. Ever. Ever. I know. So this is a real interesting test of the inter- interconnected, you know, interconnections of globalisation and just... But also, it's also, the, it's also a, about um, ESG in a way. I mean, all these companies, they're, they're, they're boycotting or shutting down Russia... Because of uh, ESG reasons. Correct, Ethi- for ethical reputation, ethical, not wanting to be associated with right. a rogue, warmongering regime. So yeah. you're right, it, it, is, it is the most dramatic piece of ESG investment decision-making I think we've ever seen since yeah. ESG came on the scene. Exactly. So anyway, I, I think it, it's obviously it's unsustainable. I suspect that uh, you know, my, my most positive outcome is... Uh, palace coup on Putin, uh, Navalny becomes Prime Minister and then Russia joins the Quad to help us all contain yeah, the, the, uh, China. The, the problem with the palace coup idea is that um, the, the Russian people are, uh, are being fed lies completely. I mean, they are... But you can't it, lie about failed visa card transactions and McDonald's No, that's being true, but, but he is, he is successfully blaming everybody else so far. But he's massively losing the information war. I mean... The, the well, we think so, but inside, but I've been reading stuff from inside Russia and they are getting one story and one story yeah, only. That is true. That which is, true. is that the, the Ukraine, they're, they're rescuing Ukraine from Nazis. But when the economy contracts by a third, how do you explain that one away? I mean, it's going to hit ordinary Russians. Well, it already look, has, keep, will keep doing it. Oh, look, I've read one idea, theory, that says these sort of things actually help despots yeah. because they get to blame well, the look, West. Look at Mugabe. I mean, he hung on for decades yes. after sanctions and, and sure. uh, impoverishing his community. Well, so and there have been sanctions. There were sanctions against Castro in Cuba, sanctions yeah. against Kim Jong-un and in there. North Korea. Yeah. didn't work. Yeah. So what sanctions have knocked over a dictator? It's, it's, it's usually the palace coup is the more common way. That That's they right. So we need, a, we need a good solid palace coup. And the Russians have had plenty of them over the years. So I think it'll be a, a food riot issue. When, when yeah. the food rations come in, that's when they'll, uh, they'll do the palace coup. Right. Let's do some questions. Let's do some questions indeed. So, um, well, the first one was we've already sort of covered. Um, no, have we? BHP oh, and Woodside. Oh, so BHP, yeah, that's right. So we've got two questions on BHP and Woodside. Do you want me to read them? Yeah, you read it out. Uh, so Alex says, I'm a BHP shareholder and I still don't understand how the merger will affect my holding. Will I have Woodside shares as per the ratio announced or do item uh, one-off... Do dividend, I get one-off? Do off. I get a one-off dividend relative to the asset price and settlement date? And Rick says, read the merger, BSP and Woodside. Can you preempt your thoughts on effects of the issue price of new Woodside shares and effect on BHP share price? All so, right. So, look, Stephen, will, B- will BHP shareholders will be collectively getting 48% of Woodside. So to explain that... Woodside's currently got 969 million shares on issue. They're going to issue an additional 900 million, and that's going to go out to all the BHP shareholders. Now, there's 550,000 BHP shareholders who collectively own 5 billion shares. So for every 5.5 BHP shares you own, you're going to receive a Woodside share. But that is actually going to be paid as an in-specie 
fully franked dividend, which I've never seen before. A, a, a piece of script share coming at you, which is classified as a franked dividend. So that's very unusual. And when you combine the fact that they're paying a $2.08 fully franked interim dividend on March 28, that's $10 billion. You have got the greatest deluge or distribution of franking credits to shareholders in the history of Australia coming up in the next uh, few months. And I think it's quite cleverly structured. And as for whether the share price is going to go up or down, I think it's, it's a nil premium merger. So, you know, the BHP share price will fall by 13% once they go X oil and gas, because that's $32 billion of their $245 billion market cap is the estimated value of the business that they're vending in for 48% of Woodside. Woodside's market cap will double from 32 to $64 billion, and they'll be a top 10 oil and gas player, which is probably good to scale up and have a more diversified portfolio. So I like the deal. It's very tax efficient. Um, I and suppose I, the question is whether um, when, when Woodside scales up, Will it get some benefit and therefore become more than uh, twice the size? Uh, uh, well, I think probably the, the whole index investing side, yes. I mean, but they're nowhere near... If you think about what some of the other majors are worth, I mean, Exxon's at uh, $350 billion US market cap and Chevron's at 304 Shell Shell is at $183 billion and, and BP $97 billion. So Woodside at US $47 billion is, get, is still going to be a... A tiddler relative to the super majors, but it will be a top 10 global tiddler. So maybe a few more index funds will jump in and they'll certainly double their shareholder numbers because they've currently got 260,000 shareholders and they're going to have all 550,000 BHP shareholders are going to suddenly appear on their register. So they're going to have at least half a million depending on the double up. Um, so I like the deal. Um, it's good. To, it, I think it's, it makes sense. I just think it was stupid for BHP to sell their 40% stake in Woodside at three bucks a share 20 years ago. When, um, oh, sorry, 30 years ago, which uh, which they should never have done, but uh, they did, and now they're now they're helping make it a, a, a top 10 oil major. Hmm. And I should ask you the next question. Um, well, I know, but these, but these are about AGL. So uh, do you think we've answered those? I think we've pretty much covered covered AGL. I mean, the only comment I was going to make is that um, I don't like these schemes of arrangement because, in a way, unless the board agrees, the takeover fails. I want to go back to the old days where they would raid on market and they would campaign to get to 90% to be able to compulsorily acquire. But the reason they've gone out of fashion is 90% is too hard. So we need to change the takeover laws and have less of these agreed schemes where only the 75% vote and go back to the traditional on-market raid but maybe make it compulsory acquisition once you've got to 80%. So it's a more realistic target to hit. And the biggest mistake that, that Canon Brooks has made and, and his mates at Brookfield, is, as I said last time, they should have bought 10 or 15% on market and they still can because the stock is tanked to $7.23. It's cheap. So if you don't want the merger, demerger to happen, Mr. Cannon Brooks, whose own share price has crashed from 460 to 250 at Atlassian, so he's had to worry about suddenly being only worth uh, 20 billion, not 30 billion. Um, so I think he should still go on market and, and get himself a seat at the table, and then it becomes a game of who's on the board. I think it's worth um, just uh, reflecting on on this, which is that uh, I mean, you, you mentioned before that. Um, Cannon Brooks and Brookfield were kind of making us making a show or posturing, posturing. Yeah, and I think that may be true of Michael Cannon Brooks, but I don't think it's true of Brookfield. I think that Brookfield is in, is in the process, in the business, 
of building an Australian power business. Mm. It's already put together transmission and distribution assets in Victoria. And Austin, I yeah. mean, it's, it, it is not a posturer, yeah. Brookfield. Yes. I mean, they... Well, they're, they're multiplex. They're, they're the, one of the biggest foreign investors in Australia. So you're right, they may come back yeah. and have another So they, they clearly are trying to do this and they mm. would want to, and they clearly would want to buy AGL or something like it. I don't and, know. and because it was such a uh, shotgun wedding between those two, between the initial announcement and sitting down and trying to work out a deal, is it 80-20 or not, one of them probably worked out that the dance partner probably wasn't right. So the first thing they need to do is get divorced. So they've got divorced, and you're probably right. Brookfield is quite capable of coming back, but the market is certainly not pricing that in at the moment. No. And everyone's expecting the demerger will go ahead, and then it'll become a game of um, does someone pay for the good bit? And uh, Brookfield would certainly be keen to buy the good bit, yeah, I would say. that's right. Um, so the, the next one from Michael is not really a question. It's just... Um a uh, statement about Bitcoin that it couldn't really work to for, for Russia to avoid sanctions, in Michael's opinion, because there's not enough liquidity. Uh, and he was picking me up on a on a piece that I wrote for New Daily, suggesting that maybe um, Putin could use Bitcoin to get around the sanctions. Sanctions and uh, and Michael, that was just a column. Yes. <laughs> But cryptos are great for money laundering and crooks and um, illegal online gambling. And, you know, that's that's why the the governments will never sur- surrender control over currencies because if the governments don't have control of it, who does? Someone's got to be in charge. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I think that, uh, that this, this whole episode with, with uh, Putin and Russia reiterates why the West needs to control currencies like the US dollar is incredibly powerful and they are deploying that power right now and they're never going to hand that power over to Bitcoin types. No. So Grant says, I was interested in your discussion last week with James Thompson about the lack of access to hybrids now into the future due to legislative changes. My wife and I currently have three different bank hybrids, ANZ, NAB and Westpac, in our SMSF, but have recently discovered that unless we pay either our accountant or financial advisor to verify we are a, quote, sophisticated or wholesale investor, we can't access the recent ANZ Capital Notes offer. I find it particularly strange that retail investors can't access the offer at the the $100 offer price, but once they are listed, we can buy any amount we like on market. Your and Stephen's thoughts would be appreciated. Well, it is a disgrace that they've passed the Design and Distributions Obligations Act in October last year, and the hundreds of thousands of retail shareholders who own hybrids are now not allowed to roll, and CBA and ANZ at the moment are kicking them off and forcing them to be redeemed and saying that only sophisticated investors can get in and that's the syndicate brokers and to be sophisticated you have to get a statement saying that you're worth 2.5 million outside of your house or you've made more than 250,000 in gross income in the last two financial or, years or you have to get financial advice you have to be you have to you, you can do you can roll them if you if you're getting financial advice which i presume was done by the government uh, because of lobbying from the financial advisors. Well, I'm guessing to get business. Correct. I think this has been a which magnificent, is a complete disgrace. It's a disgrace. This has been a magnificent earner for all the brokers who are currently doing the 1.3 billion dollar ANZ hybrid and the 1.75 billion dollar Pearls 14 offer by CBA. Because if you go back, I had a look at the ANZ 27 offer and I wrote about this in Constant Investor at the time. 
In 2017, they did a hybrid offer of 1.34 billion, and 747 million of that chose to roll. And of those people who rolled, who were already holding it, mainly retail, they applied for an extra 65 million. Then they made the offer also to their 550,000 ordinary shareholders who weren't hybrid owner but had ordinary shares, and, and another 183 million applied for that, and that satisfied everything. They didn't even fire up the broker offer. They canned it because demand was so strong from current owners. So now they've cut it and off. Now they've cut the whole thing off and the whole thing is off to, to brokers unless you fill in these forms saying you're sophisticated. So I've got a new product for the Australian Shareholders Association to build, which is this, a centralised list of everyone who's deemed officially sophisticated. And then you present that list to every book build offerer and you say, you must invite these people, they are officially sophisticated. Because at the moment, it's all hidden within accountant's office, financial advisor's office and broker's offices. And no one knows who is sophisticated or who is not. And now they've cut off the hybrid rollover. We need retail to get a new mechanism to get back into the game. Because being kicked out of an existing investment effectively when it rolls is is a whole new level of disenfranchisement of retail. And there's a lot of Australians with a two and a half million dollar house now. No, I think it's 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 outside of your house. It's out the house, outside yeah, the house. Yeah, oh. it's, it's outside of your right. house. Oh well. So, um, but I mean, it, the, the word sophisticated is a joke too. You can be a rich farmer who's as thick as two planks financially and you can get ripped off blind because you've got the financial assets and you can have a PhD in financial management and you're not sophisticated. So it's bullshit. it should be credential-based, not dollars-based, in my view. Um, Tim. Tim says, check out these obscene employment costs in the bike exchange announcement on 25th of February, page 22. I hope that the executive rem numbers cited in the second point here are provisional are a provision taken in the event that the business succeeds and the SBPs vest. However, I doubt it. My question is, at what point is an ASX-listed company prohibited from issuing shares based, share-based benefits due to lack of performance? I reckon that the fact that they're doing all sorts of acquisitions immediately post-IPO means that their original plan is scrapped and they're scrambling to save face. All of the above aside, excluding the executive REM one-offs, the core employment costs become so high, calculate with flat employment costs, 30% revenue growth. We'll be waiting five years to see a P&L with a profit. <laughs> now, Tim, like every investor who's lost money, and you obviously paid 26 cents in the float 13 months ago. And what are they now? At 20 million, and they're now at 7.6 cents. So Ooh. I can understand you're angry, and I can understand you say that they they, they did pay point. 7 million in employee costs in the last six months. But look, they've had to hire a whole bunch of new people. You can't roll out a global, the world's biggest bike exchange without having some smart people. So there are many successful startups that lose money for a few years, hire some great talent and then come good. So this hopefully happens with this Jerry Ryan associated outfit. And Jerry Ryan remains the largest shareholder, the Jayco Caravan King. He has still got 17% and his son is on the board. They've obviously overpriced the float. So they've though. overpriced the float. They haven't executed well. And um, you should be angry about that. But I don't think you should start demanding that and also, companies staff often, don't have incentives. Companies often go on, a, on an acquisition binge after IPOing. Yeah. 
Because that's and there's, and there's they got all this money the, in the bank. Well, yeah. it's the reason they IPO. Yeah, really, but they to only, get the money to make acquisitions. But they only raised twenty, and they lost eleven million in their first full year, and another six in the last half. So they and they lost. Was that cash. cash they lost? That's real cash. Yeah, I think it's real cash. So they're they're you know they haven't executed well. So you, you know they'll probably have to come back to market. And as soon as a, as soon as a small cap is suddenly in need of cash, that always hangs over the share price big time. So, but look. Um, hopefully it turns around, but you've got to pay these people something. And maybe the, the business model of uh, the world's biggest bike exchange where, where you, you have all these bike customers who come onto the exchange and then you get paid by bike suppliers to have access to those customers. Maybe that's not a great model. Oscar says, Alan, in your ABC video titled, quote, some context around Australia's largest quarterly GDP growth since 1976 you paired a decline in both GDP and business investment to the, quote, absence of a coherent energy policy. Assuming productivity is a measure of an economy's ability to convert units of energy into something of value, why does energy policy matter when it is the convertibility of energy that leads to productivity? Could you please further explain your theory and clarify if you meant to imply investment risk is higher for productive assets versus non-productive assets? So um, the centre the centerpiece of this uh, little piece I did for the ABC on a Sunday last Sunday I think it was no Sunday before anyway was a chart showing business investment over the decades um, in both buildings and structures and um, plant and equipment plant and equipment investment seven percent a year in seven percent per annum through the nineties and the two thousands from two thousand and ten to two thousand um, and 20, uh, zero. And uh, buildings and structures investment um, went from 5% to 10% per annum from between the 90s to the 2000s, zero in the, um, so I, I kind of thought that was pretty interesting. So I wanted to, I wanted to show that and talk about it. Um, it's also the case that uh, that also coincided with a decline in, uh, a long term decline in GDP. <laughs> Um, and also in productivity. And so, uh, and I rang a few people and said, you know, why do you think business investment has declined? And the, the common answer has to do with kind of, um, uh, well, it's not really very convincing. It's sort of to do with... Confidence uh, post-GFC, yeah. anticipated demand, is, is, is it really going to be there? And So I, I postulated that, uh, I, I, mean, I and I do think this. It was because of a lack of a coherent energy policy. Which uh, energy is a tremendously important input. Mm. Um, I think it's it's part of it. But you need to re- remember that that mining investment went from two percent of GDP for fifty years, and then peaked at nine percent of GDP in two thousand and twelve thirteen, when it peaked at one thirty six billion in one financial year, and so. And then we went. We got through the mining investment boom, and then and then it's the overall business investment has tail, tailored off. But you're right; the other sectors are also a bit insipid. In, in um, and I think there's an element of these greedy shareholders demanding cash, dividends, and buybacks. There is definitely an element of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. T- uh, totally. And we're all just too conservative. I mean, at, at City Manningham the other night, I discovered that we own two street sweepers, right? And they cost three hundred and sixty thousand each. And one of them is more than 20 years old and has to be serviced every 14 days. And I said to the guys, I said, would you like a new one? 
We've got 96 million in the bank. We can afford to buy a new street sweeping machine and, and spend a bit of capital works rather than get this whole clunker that's more than 20 years old and has to be serviced every two weeks. So hopefully we can, you know, that's an example of capital expenditure. And but who, who, who's going to buy a second-hand street sweeper? Well, it's, it's probably what worthless. To it? what We've had it? 20 years out of it. It goes into the landfill, doesn't it? Send it to the tip, yeah. So we'll recycle it. But, you know, we've got 96 million in the bank and we should be investing in, in you know, capital works. But we're not, we seem to be so conservative we don't do that. Um, I'm not sure this is a question, but we'll, talk, we'll hear from Lachlan, who says, your conversation last week about Blackstone and other investment firms in the US purchasing affordable homes to rent out terrified me to the core. Apparently similar things are happening in the UK, so can you see such a trend taking off here? Are there regulations or laws in place to prevent such a move, or are we heading towards a dystopian future where we rent everything and own nothing? So just to, you probably heard it, but um, James Thompson talked about how Blackstone is buying houses and and what's wrong with that out. what is wrong with that it is another asset class we are ridiculous well, in australia where we have all these tax incentives to keep corporates out of housing i agree with you i mean the land tax exemption is the big killer i mean the victorian government makes four point you know land tax receipts in victoria are going to jump 15 percent this year to 4.2 billion yet every single house that you live in is exempt so if Blackstone comes in and buys up a bunch of houses here, they've suddenly got this massive land tax bill because they're not exempt. And then you've got negative gearing where no corporate can claim negative gearing. Um, and so you get individual investors who go in there, but no corporate will. So finally we're getting a few of these build-to-rent schemes from the likes of Mervac where they're buying and owning and they're offering an integrated sort of hotel service. And most of them are only doing it because the various state governments are requiring a certain amount of affordable housing to be, to be in there and are giving them land tax breaks to give them the incentive to do that because we don't have enough rental stock out there and we need to encourage developers to build more. And who cares who owns it as long as they follow the rental tenancy laws of the day? Often you'll find that a Blackstone, world's biggest property owner, will be a better landlord than... You know, your typical tough, tough as nails, spend nothing, negative gains, you know, negative you gearing go. investor who uh, doesn't doesn't agree to replace the, the well, broken door. Cop that, Lachlan. There you go. Okay, Sam. In the last episode with Stephen, he mentioned that there is a bubble in inner city property prices. Is this just his view from the spacious tennis court council in Manningham, or is there some substance to this theory? Me and my wife are saving a deposit to buy somewhere close to a train station in Sydney. Should we slow down to build a bigger deposit beyond 20%? What are some good indicators that the bubble is becoming unstable? Well, Sam, look, 20% is a good deposit, I would argue, in this crazy market. If you've got 20% to buy into Sydney, you've got plenty of cash. And the only minor evidence I will cite for you is the fact that Sydney median house prices jumped by 23% in 2021 to a record 1.4 million. So that sounds like a bit of a bubble to me, 23% in one year, although it has come off in recent weeks, but the surge of listings that we're seeing nationally for me is a sign of a bubble in that the smart money is saying this is crazy, cash in while you can. Um, yeah, 23% is a lot. That doesn't mean it's going to fall by 23%. No. Um, it, it probably means, I mean, prices in Sydney have definitely peaked and, and Melbourne have peaked and they're probably going to fall a bit. But um, the idea that we're, it's, it's a bubble that's going to now crash, I think, is mistaken. Um, I, think, I think you'd be wrong to think that you're going to suddenly find house prices 20% less. Yeah. 
Oh, it's certainly not going to fall. So I, w- I would say, Sam, look, keep going to auctions and, you know, be ready to go. Because often you turn up at an auction and, you know, you can just get lucky. You know, if one goes crazy, one's not too bad. And so, also, I keep saying this, the, the most important thing about buying a house to live in is, do you like it? Yeah. Is it a good house that you can bring up a family in? Is it, is it the house you like? Because if it is, then buy it for hell's, you know, goodness sake. Yeah, you're not going to sell it for 20 years, so it actually doesn't matter that much doesn't what matter. you pay for it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, mean, I, I wouldn't be leaping into this market, but, you know... I've been saying that for years, that it's overpriced and it keeps going up, so what would I know? Roberto says, for those who have a low-rate fixed or variable loan and a hex debt that is about to be indexed by inflation in June, do you think it may be worthwhile contributing to the hex rather than the loan if inflation is going to pick up? Also, do you think the government workers that got free education and are making these decisions may consider adopting a different method rather than CPI, i.e. wages growth, which seems to be tracking lower? So I didn't know that hex is going to be indexed. Did you know that? I didn't, but uh, most things are in life. They're indexed. So there's a bit of a campaign at the moment for the beer index to be cut, which ScoMo and Josh are looking at doing to help pubs and clubs. You've already got noises about, you know, don't index the excise, the 44 cents excise levy on petrol because the oil prices are so high, give them some relief. We've already got the fourth lowest excise in the world for petrol, so... I'm not sure that the government will give the petrol relief, but the beer relief is coming rather than having CPI. So as for the advice, yes, if your interest rate is lower than the CPI, which is probably the case now with CPI, yes, maximise your mortgage and pay off your hex debt. So always pay off your most expensive debt first. Yes, absolutely. Your turn. Well, I think the last, last couple are basically a we were wrong effectively, where both Anil and Lee have written in to say, listen, you guys, you can income split with your spouse through a super fund, not just an SMSF. So I think we simply have yeah, to say and with so, that. And, um, and uh, I, I deferred to my to our Eureka Report SMSF coach, yes. Olivia Long, on this, yes. and she is an SMSF expert, not a super fund yes. expert. Yes. Uh, so that's why that... Uh, there and, um, and I didn't know myself and so there we are. Yeah, so you can, uh, and that is the case in most things with super. If you can do it in one category, you can do it in another. I mean, it'd be pretty rough if you couldn't income split with well, your industry fund if you can do it exactly. in SMS. As it, well, yes. a fund is a fund, really, yeah. in a way. I mean, if the structure is, the, the, the legal structure is the same, mm. whether it's a uh, Australian super or a... Um, SMSF. An SMSF. It's still a fund. Still a fund. Yes, exactly. All right, Alan. Well, that's that's the end of our question. So um, you can, you can uh, go back to getting over your AFR party hangover. A la the a la um, hard quiz. You can do the sign off. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Money Cafe. James Thompson will be back next week. So send in a question and we'll answer it together on next week's episode by emailing themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Stephen Main. He's Alan Kohler, and we've been. The Money Money Cafe. Cafe.